Thanks for tuning in today to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Handel. If you've been following our recent podcast, we've been shining a light on a very much needed topic, a much needed light on the, on the topic of great importance, and that is wrongful conviction. We had two men as guests in past podcasts, both exonerated from prison and spent a total of 73 years behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. I hope sincerely that our listeners were awed by their courage and their positive attitudes and their desire to begin their lives as members of society all over again. I should say productive members of society because that's very much what they want. Now today, I had hoped to have two guests from two local foundations. When I say local, I mean here in Sarasota, Florida. Foundations which have contributed grants to the Innocence Project of Florida, which is, of course, at the very core of pursuing justice. But unfortunately, their schedules weren't compatible with our recording day. So in their place, I thought about what I wanted to do, and I decided to pursue the thread of philanthropy, which will be our topic today and for the next several podcasts. And what I have done is um, kind of departed a little bit from what we usually do, and I'm sharing a little bit of my own philosophy about giving back to my community. And I actually have two communities because I split my time between Florida and New York. So one of the things that I very much believe is that children learn about volunteering by example. And one of my earliest memories is my mother showing me a photo of a big group of children in the Philippines that had been taken from their parents. Why? The reason is their parents had leprosy, which is very, very contagious. The children had been placed in an orphanage and they were very much in need of toys. My mom asked me to give up some of my toys that were in very good condition so she could send them to the Philippines. I also recall that my mother wanted me to be active in Girl Scouts, but there was no troop. So she decided to form a troop and become my Girl Scout leader. And in Scouts, we did many community projects. I don't remember some of them. It was an awfully long time ago. But again, um, the idea of serving, uh, uh, you know, teaching by example. My dad served in World War II in France. He left when I was eight months old, and he came back when I was about two and a half. My mother promised to volunteer with the VA, the Veterans Association at the VA hospital, if he came back. And that is exactly what she did. Every week when I was in high school and beyond, she went to the ward um, occupied by quadriplegics and paraplegics to play Scrabble with the men there. She made a great 
great many friends, and she also made a great difference in their lives as it was something to look forward to. And she said some of them really beat her at Scrabble. So it was, it was very, very challenging. To me, volunteering changes lives. And I believe that it changes lives one at a time. So as I said, half the year I'm here in Sarasota. And what I wanted to share with my listeners is the amazing amount of, of groups here. I'm only just scratching the surface. These are only the groups that I've gotten involved with, but there are so, so many here. And not just here, in every community. So what I'm hoping with this theme of philanthropy, which we will be also following with the guests we have uh, in the next few weeks, is that you as listeners will be motivated to seek out groups in your community that possibly would speak to you and say, um, I'd like to help out. In, in uh, Florida, the state of Florida, there is a group that was formed in 1995. It's, it's not in any other state. And the group is called Take Stock in Children. The organization was formed in 1995, but I didn't know about it and I didn't start volunteering until 2008. It is a mentoring organization and it is restricted to children, well, they're, they're actually middle school and high school young, young people who are um, economically disadvantaged. That, that is the, um, the entrance uh, requirement. You, you have to be, um, I believe it's, you have to be on free lunch. And then they pair this young person with a mentor. So the women volunteers are matched with a young lady and the men are matched with young boys. And they expect that the mentors will stay with their mentee all the way from approximately age 12 to high school graduation. When the student graduates for keeping their grades up, uh, uh, not in getting involved with alcohol, drugs, or anything like that, or even cutting class, they do expect good behavior and decent grades, not perfect. Once they complete the program, and there are some requirements, meetings that they have to attend, but most important, they must meet with their mentors every single week. Then the reward is four years of college free of charge, which I think is a wonderful carrot and a wonderful reward. So right now I'm working with my second student and she is in grade 11 and she will be graduating next year um, when she completes grade 12, of course, and she will go on to, uh, to college. And one of the themes uh, that they have is change a life over lunch. So many of the mentors go during lunch. I usually pick a time where I can see my student for an hour to an hour and a half. I don't feel a half hour at lunchtime is really enough. The other organization here in Sarasota that I've been active with for probably about 25 years 
uh, was called Adopt a Family, and I've now switched over to Jewish Family and Children's Services. They do the same thing. They assign me a family at the holiday, and sometimes there are nine children in a family. I had that a couple of years ago, and sometimes maybe just seven or five and I fill their wish list. Um, I do receive a list of what they would like, their ages, uh, their favorite color, uh, just their first name. I never meet them, and they never meet me. So it's kind of anonymous. And uh, it, to me, the holiday is really all about helping those who wouldn't have a holiday if it weren't for someone like me. So uh, many, many people are participate in this. Um, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing that they do. There's also an organization called project 180. A close friend of mine started that project and it's for men coming out of prison who have nowhere to go, no family, no friends. Um, and what happens to anyone coming out of prison that has no support system? We know very well they will end up going back through the revolving door. So this is to prevent that from happening. So um, Project 180 has a home where these men can live, and they are now working on a, buying a second house for more men coming out of prison. And they help them with job training and anything else to reacclimate them back into society. A wonderful group. The last group that I've been active with in, in Sarasota is called Sela Freedom, S-E-L-A-H, and it is for victims of trafficking. And these are young women who have been uh, on the streets um, as often as prostitutes, and they are wanting to get out of what they call the life. That's what they call it, the life. Uh, Sailor Freedom has a home, a safe home for these women. Um, they certainly can't house very many. Uh, it's just one home um, here in, in Sarasota in a secret location. And my job was to tutor one of the young women who never graduated from high school. She was on the streets at 15 and uh, then had children. So that is what we got involved with, uh, both my husband and I, and helping her get her GED so she could have a diploma. So those, those are just, that's just a sampling of a few organizations here in town. But then there are some groups in New York that are wonderful groups. Um, one of them, and I'm going to turn the clock back to the, the mid-1990s, uh, was a, um, I found out about this group through 60 Minutes, which I, I'm a, a devoted watcher every Sunday evening. And this group was called Birch Family Camp. This was a camp for families dealing with AIDS. And the children, some of the children had already um, gotten AIDS from their parents through possibly drug um, blood transfusions. Um, some of the children were free of AIDS and the parents were very, very sick. At that time, 
AIDS was, was a fatal disease. But sometime after, a cocktail was developed of several drugs that absolutely took people who were close to death's door and turned them around and they were healthy again. It was nothing short of a miracle. But at the time, that drug was not developed yet. And this camp ran all summer and every single week, a new group of children and their families came most often from New York City by bus. It was in upstate New York, about, I would say, two hours out of the city. And when anyone would come to the camp, you would never, ever know what kind of camp it was because we were hugging and kissing the children and having a wonderful, wonderful time. It's just like any other summer camp with swimming, horseback riding, um, arts and crafts, uh, you know, games, uh, both game. I, I was called, I was called the game dame. So I managed to scare up as many board games as I could that I got donated, uh, by stores in my area and books so that we wanted to give the kids a quiet time during the day and their counselors would bring the children to me and I would set up the board games and read to them, and then they would go on their way to their next activity. And then at night, I would go from bunk to bunk and read to the children so they would be able to fall asleep. It was a wonderful um, experience, and I think in that time frame, there was still a great deal of shame about AIDS, and um, initially when the camp was formed, Nobody knew where they went. Uh, they went to a secret location. And then 60 Minutes came along and, um, you know, interviewed the children and the families at the camp. And it was much less of a uh, something to hide and something to be very, very proud of. Another wonderful camp was formed by the incredible actor Paul Newman, it was called the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. And that was in Connecticut, not very, very far from where I live in New York. This camp, he formed th over 30 years ago. And uh, what he wanted was to bring very, very sick children to the camp free of charge. Every possible disease a child could have from cancer to diabetes to muscular dystrophy, it didn't matter. Everybody was welcome. And when Newman was alive, he and Joanne Woodward, his wife, were there to welcome the kids. And I heard a very funny story when I was there this summer. Uh, I volunteered. I forget when that was, but I think it was maybe seven years ago. Um, every I, Some of you who know Newman... He has his own label, Newman's Own, all these products, popcorn and tomato sauce and salad dressing and lemonade. So, of course, every when we, we had our meals, everything practically was Paul Newman's uh, uh, label. And his lemonade was uh, done in a carton. And on the carton was his face. It, you know, he, he kind of was joking about uh, his products and, and he would put funny things on his products. 
And one of the little children remembered that when there is a lost child, they sometimes put their face on a milk carton. So one of the children said to him, are you lost? And the, the counselors told me he just got the biggest kick out of that. But he would, he would wander through the camp summer after summer. I'm sure these children didn't have any idea of who he was and what a wonderful, wonderful heart he had. He loved the children and uh, he welcomed them all. So it was a great experience. And as it turned out, the group they assigned me that summer was a group of boys who had AIDS. Interesting that it had nothing to do with the other camp I was at, but uh, so I, I was working with, um, I think they were eight to 10 year old boys. So it was a great summer. I know the kids all had a, a wonderful, wonderful time. In, in uh, New York as well, um, where I live, there is a maximum security prison uh, about three minutes away from the house. I didn't know it was even there. It's kind of hiding on a little country road. And I decided that I would volunteer at that prison. I'd never been in a prison in my life. And I kind of think that was the beginning of my journey uh, with becoming involved with the criminal justice system. So that, that began in 2007. And I became a teacher, volunteer teacher, for the next four years from 2007 to 2011. And the reason I wanted to volunteer is my, um, my graduate degree is in learning disabilities. And what we know is that many, many young boys in juvenile detention have serious learning disabilities. And of course, if the young boys have a learning disability, then if that's not addressed, what are we going to see in the men's prisons? We're going to see the same thing. So the rate of illiteracy, the rate of learning problems in prison among men is extremely high. But it's not being addressed because they're not going to hire a specialist to tutor these men. But I thought maybe... I could make a difference, maybe. So I began by doing exactly that, tutoring the men one at a time. I would sit at a table in the back of the room while the teacher was teaching and try to help them with their reading, their spelling, and their writing. But then I wanted to do, I wanted to have a larger impact. And I decided to help them pass their GED, their um, high school diploma class. And in New York, if you don't have a diploma, when you come to prison, you don't have a high school diploma, you are required to attend school, which I think is a, a great requirement. So the classes had about 20 men in each class, about 10 different classes. And what I wanted to do was to reach more, more men. So I took over for the teacher, and the teacher sat in the back, um, and I would teach a class Mondays, Wednesdays, and Friday. So I taught 120 men a week, and what we worked on was creative writing. And the essay portion of the GED 
requires maybe like a three-paragraph, four-paragraph essay about a personal topic, something that uh, the men know about. So you can't really have a wrong answer. So a question might be, um, who was a great influence in your life? And then they can address that in an essay. So I, I did that for four years, and um, then I stopped teaching. You're not allowed to visit anyone in prison if you're a volunteer. So I stopped volunteering, and now I visit six of those men that I had in class. And now to one of the most important volunteer, I, I don't know that I want to call it a job, because it really isn't, but out of Greenhaven, that was the prison, I neglected to mention the name of it, Greenhaven Correctional Facility with about 2,400 men, a maximum security prison. One day in one of the classes that I was teaching, I would read to the men um, from various memoirs to, to have them hear what good writing sounded like. And I read from Barack Obama's memoir, um, many African-American uh, memoirs that they really could relate to. But one time I discovered a book that I thought they might like, and it was a book of stories written by women in a maximum security prison in Connecticut. So I brought the book to class and I picked out a short story. It was only four pages and I read it to the men and the story was called A Gift. And it was written by a young woman who had been incarcerated age 14 and was still in prison. Uh, one of the men said to me, wow, that's a great story. Did you write to her and tell her how much we enjoyed her story? And of course I had read it to all 10 classes. And I said, no, I didn't do that. Um, I wrote to the author who edited the book. He's a famous author. His name is Wally Lamb. Uh, and they said to me, wait, we, we didn't ask you that. We asked you if you wrote to her, not the man who edited the book. And I said, no, I, I didn't do that. And they said, well, how about you do that? And so they shamed me into it and I wrote her. But I didn't hear from her for four months because she had attempted suicide uh, and she was in a very bad place, mentally and emotionally and physically. But I finally heard from her four months later and asked if she would be interested in coming or coming to see her. And uh, it's a six-hour round trip up to her prison from where we are, but we, we did get to see her. And that was 11 years ago. And since then, when we are in New York, we go to see her on a regular basis. And what has happened is that we have, in a sense, adopted her as our daughter. So when I talk about changing lives one at a time, I think that's how you do it. That I wish I could change the criminal justice system. I'm doing the best I can with the work I do for the Innocence Project of Florida. But it's really not enough. Um, what I think really makes a difference is to try to get involved with one person. And that's very much what has happened with this young woman whose name is Robin. She has accomplished a great deal. She has been in prison now for 25 years since she was 14. 
She will be 39 this year, and she has just graduated from a uh, from college, a two-year college, so she has what we call an associate's degree. She's now working on her bachelor's degree. She is a certified nurse assistant. Uh, she is a published author. She's a prize-winning author. Uh, there was a contest, um, oh, I guess, a few years ago that goes on every year for prison people in prison to submit a piece of writing, and she won third prize out of the entire nation. They don't give very many prizes, but she got one. Um, she is now a mentor in her prison, mentoring the young teenagers because she knows what it was like to come into prison at a very, very young age. And the New York Times has written some stories about her because her program is uh, kind of a pilot program that the governor of Connecticut started and has gotten some very, very good press. So we have created a bond. We write to each other. When I can't see her, we call um, and when we are back in New York, of course, we see her on a regular basis. So uh, I know she has made an impact in my life. She's made a difference to me, and I hope that I have done the same. Um, at least we are there for her when she needs us. Um, she hasn't had a, a very reliable set of parents, uh, Very some very sad stories. But she pursues uh, her, her goals, her dreams. She hasn't given up, and that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So I, I encourage uh, my listeners to write to me um, at the new email. I'll give it to you. It's called pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. And I wanted to tell you what's coming up. It's always nice to know programs that are um, in the works. Uh, we have uh, three guests uh, coming up. Two of them are parents of the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida. And we have a lawyer who is uh, from Sarasota and has been extremely supportive and philanthropic wherein the Innocence Project of Florida is concerned. So I encourage you to stay tuned and uh, join us next time on Pursuing Justice. What's it doing? Designing my new 2021 Nissan Kicks Online in the Kicks Color Studio. I give each a special name. This one's electric blue, orange, red, white. I call it the gumball machine. You think it's me? I feel like you're more of a red velvet guy. Limitless possibilities. With over 100 million available color combinations and Bose Personal Plus system in the boldly new 2021 Nissan Kicks. Bose is the registered trademark of the Bose Corporation. Color combinations include interior and exterior colors. Customization is an available feature subject to availability at participating Nissan dealers. See dealer for details.